0: Well, I wasn't here last Sunday. Um, I was out of town, had a chance to get to Denver and see my folks and have some fun on Liberty Weekend with my family. Um, but when I got back, I had a number of people tell me, oh my gosh, Seth's sermon last week or the Sunday was so good. And uh, it really was good. I went back and watched it. If you haven't gone and seen it or listened to our podcast, you should do that to keep up with stuff. But when I asked them. I said, well, what, what was so good about it? And one of the answers that I got, I got a few different answers. One of the answers really surprised me. Somebody said, Well, he talked about how things aren't going to get better. (laughs) It's like, that was good? (laughs) That encouraged you? And that is kind of one of the things that Seth talked about last week. He said, you know, there's these times when you're faithful to God, and you do everything that God calls you to do, and you do everything that you think will work, and you do everything that's right, and it still doesn't work. And in terms of you still get opposition, you still get resistance, it, it doesn't all kind of just have a nice little ribbon or bow tied around your life, right? There's times when it's just not gonna get better. That seems like the kind of time that we're in here in the book of Acts is the apostle Paul keeps trying to do what God's calling him to do, keeps trying to do what the Spirit's leading him to do, keeps trying to do what the gospel, the good news of Jesus compels him to do, and yet he keeps facing resistance. How do you keep going if things aren't gonna get better? Better. That's just what you see over and over and over here. Just kind of by review the last few chapters, chapters 20 and 21 is Paul really setting his face toward Jerusalem. He knows that the Spirit is leading him to go to Jerusalem, and he knows that when he gets there, he's going to suffer. Then chapters 21 through 23 is Paul on trial in Jerusalem for his faithfulness. His face is set toward Jerusalem, he gets to Jerusalem, and he's on trial for just doing the things that God had told him to do. The rest of chapter 23 is the Jewish leaders determined to kill him. For those of you who are familiar with the scripture, does this sound familiar? That someone would set his face toward Jerusalem, get to Jerusalem and face an unjust trial, and have the Jewish leaders conspire and determine to kill him? Does that sound familiar. It should. It should sound a lot like Jesus. And in fact, it seems like perhaps the reason that Luke, as he writes this, is going into so much detail. We go, gosh, there's a lot of detail on this stuff. It seems like he's doing that to help us see the parallels. That to follow Jesus means that we will often do the right thing. We will often be led by God. We will often be obedient to the things God says and still find resistance. That's what it is, to follow Jesus. Jesus. Now, it's noble of us to think, well, I'll just stay strong in the face of injustice and pain. I'll face those difficulties. I'll just keep getting back up. I'll just be tough. I'll just have grit. I'll just keep going. But the reality is that's not realistic. It's not even really what you see in in the life of Paul here. I think there's times as we go through the book of Acts where we almost kind of deify Paul, right? There's a similarity that you see between Jesus and Paul, but there's also a real difference. And you start to feel Paul kind of starting to to bend underneath the strain of this resistance. You see it a few different places here in that long passage that we'd read just a moment ago. You see it at the beginning of chapter 23. Look there at 23 verse one. Paul is there in front of the council, in front of the Sanhedrin, in front of the people that have the power to put him to death and definitely want to or at least they have the power to recommend that to the Roman government. He says, brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day, and the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Ananias, we know from history, was not a very holy person, even though he was the chief priest. And so he orders Paul to be struck. Paul says this. Look at how Paul lashes out in frustration, verse 3. Then Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall well they call him on this they go are you sure that that's how you're going to talk to the high priest because the old testament scriptures said you don't revile a high priest and quickly paul realizes oh my gosh i verse five i did not know brothers that he was the high priest for it's written you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people but you can feel can't you the frustration in paul mounting Right? When Jesus was slapped, when Jesus was accused, when Jesus was blasphemed, he opened not his mouth, but not Paul. He's frustrated. It's noble to think that you could keep doing the right thing and have it keep getting you nowhere, and that you'll just keep getting up and you'll just always have a good attitude, but Paul didn't. He's frustrated. You also see that he's fearful. Now, you see this a little more indirectly in verse 11. Look at chapter 23, verse 11. It says, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. The Lord stood by him and said, take courage. Why would Jesus have to tell Paul, take courage, unless he was afraid? Right, you don't have to tell someone, hey, be strong, be courageous, hang in there unless they're withering under the pressure they're experiencing, right? So Paul is frustrated, Paul is fearful. And the reason for that is Paul wasn't the Christ. Yes, there's similarities because when we follow Jesus, we follow in a path of suffering even when we do the right thing. But there's differences. Paul was not the Christ and you're not the Christ. Here's what I want you to do. Some of you will like this a lot. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are not the Christ. And we're called to imitate Jesus. We're promised that we're being conformed into the image of Jesus, but we are not the Christ. We are frustrated and fearful a lot. You ever feel like that? Those of you who are taking care of your aging parents, and you keep showing up, and you keep being there, and you keep doing the right thing, and you know that it's the right thing but it's just hard and you feel frustrated and you feel discouraged and you just watch the decline and, and it's hard. Those of you who take care and spend a lot of your days chasing around little people and they don't say thanks a lot and every day you're just cleaning up the same messes and saying the same things and one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish till you feel like your brain is numb. Some of you work with incompetent leaders. You're a professional, you're trained, you have experience, you you know what to do in your job and yet you're held back by the incompetence of people above you. And you are in this sick or unhealthy culture that's there, not because of you, but because of incompetent leadership above you. And you can get frustrated in that. How do you keep doing the right thing in those moments when you just know like, it doesn't matter what I do, this culture doesn't seem like it's changing. Some of you, you know the frustration and the fear of endless doctor's visits. It takes a long time to get an appointment and then you get the appointment And you walk out just as clueless as you came in. And you have another appointment. And you have another appointment. And you have another appointment. And you have no answers. How do you keep standing for what's right when no one else seems to care? How do you keep looking around your work and going, this is what we need to do. This is the right thing. This is the ethical thing. This is how we should treat people. And no one else really cares about it. How do you keep going when you're frustrated and fearful? Well, I want to focus in on what I think is the answer to that question. And in the midst of all of that story and all of this uh, narrative that we read and that we see in Acts chapter 23, I want to focus in on verse 11. I think that tells us the answer. How do we keep going in the face of frustration and fatigue? The answer is the presence and promise of God. The presence and promise of God. Look at that in verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him. That's the presence. And said, take courage, for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Jesus says, listen, Paul, you've been faithful to me. You've testified about me in Rome. And no matter how hard it gets, no matter who threatens your life, no matter how long it takes, you will testify about me in Rome. I will get you to Rome, Paul says. It's the presence and the promises of God in Jesus that keep him Going, So first, let's look at that. The presence of God. The presence of God is the good news of the Bible. The presence of God is the good news of the Bible. It's the good news of the gospel. Paul experiences here the Lord standing by him, the Lord present with him. But this is not just something that Paul gets to experience because he's an apostle or because he's a missionary or because he's super faithful. This is actually the point of the whole Bible. My two older daughters are in, a, in, a, they're, they're in rehearsals right now to be part of the Lion King Jr., uh, that play that's coming up at the Queen Creek Performing Arts Center in a few months. And I picked them up at rehearsal the other day and I said to my oldest daughter, I said, hey, uh, how did it go? What did you do? And she said, well, we learned this new song. And I said, oh, really, is it good? And she said, yeah, it's really good. It's, it's kind of like the story of the whole Bible. What play are you in, Blanky? <laughs> I said, "Well, what's it called?" She said, "He lives in you." I'm not going to sing you the song, but that title tells you. It's the, 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 what did she mean? She said, "The whole story of the Bible is about God coming to live in you. It's about the presence of God. The presence of God is the good news." of the Bible. Think about this. At the beginning of the Bible in creation, God walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. There's relationship. He's with them. They enjoy his presence. What their rebellion is, the fall into sin that you read about in Genesis 3, is them saying, you know what, God, we would like to have, we don't necessarily need your presence. We want what we want. We're good on our own. And what happens as a result of that rebellion is they're cut off from the presence of God. Now God continues to pursue them. God continues to move near them. And God does that by calling Abraham and saying, Abraham, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bless you. And he calls Abraham to form this people. And this people, Israel, becomes the people who the main unique thing about the people of Israel were that they had relationship with the presence of God. See, it was the tabernacle that the, that the nation of Israel carried around in the wilderness. And in the tabernacle, do you know what was there in the Holy of Holies? The same thing that was there eventually, centuries later, when they finally got to build a permanent building, a permanent temple, and the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and the Holy Holies of the temple had the same thing. Do you know what it was? The presence of God. And even as Israel continued to rebel and continued to disobey, and eventually in the book of Habakkuk, that that presence of God seems to kind of float away. It would not be long before the presence of God would again come near in what we celebrate every Christmas, that Jesus is the word of God made flesh. God in a bod, God incarnate. You know what that means? God concarne. God with meat, God with flesh. That's what the Bible's about. That's what the good news of the Bible's about, is God coming near to you, and God comes near to us in the person of Jesus. And then even after Jesus is crucified and dies and is resurrected and he ascends, do you know what he then sends to his people? This is what we saw at the beginning of this book. His presence in the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit comes and fills them and blesses them and empowers them and strengthens not just that early church in Acts, but comes and strengthens and blesses and encourages and molds and forms us. And we look ahead to the day when all things will be made new. And do you know what the center attraction of the new creation is? God with us. Here's what it says in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Are you frustrated by the lack of a clear diagnosis? Are you frustrated, are you afraid, are you fearful, are you discouraged by how day after day after day just feels like Groundhog Day? You get up and you do it all again. It doesn't feel like it gets better and it doesn't feel like it changes. You frustrated by incompetent leadership or by you being the only one standing in the face of something that's wrong and no one else cares. How do you hold up? You hold up through the presence of God. God is with you, God is for you. We need the presence of God. The presence of God is the good news of the Bible. But Jesus doesn't just offer his presence there in verse 11, as powerful and as sweet and as important as that is, he also offers a promise. And so not only is the presence of God the good news of the Bible, but the promises of God are the thing that sustain our faith. We have the presence of God and we have the promises of God. The promise of God to Paul, as I mentioned, was that he would get to Rome. That's what he wanted to do. That's what he dreamt about doing. That's what Luke says at the beginning of the book. Jesus said would happen that God's people would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth. And Paul's going to get to the ends of the earth by the end of Acts. Listen, the essence of of living by faith is trusting in God's promises, right? This, this fall is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And whether you grew up Protestant or you grew up Catholic or you grew up nothing and you don't know any of the differences between all of that stuff and, and sometimes the differences are significant and sometimes they're overblown, but the key idea of the Reformation was that we should be people who live by faith. And what is faith? You go, I don't know if I have faith. I don't know if I have enough faith. I I want my faith to grow. What's faith? Here's what faith is. Faith is trust. Trust in God and trust particularly in the promises of God. So Paul had this opportunity that would sustain him, that would nourish him, that Jesus came and said, you will get to Rome. Here's a promise for you to hold on to when it gets difficult, when your life is threatened, when you feel like you just keep banging your head against the wall. Take courage. This is my promise for you. Now, I don't know about you, um, as much as I'd like to travel to Rome, I don't like, think that I can take this verse and go... Oh, God's promising a vacation to Rome. Take courage. You're going to Rome. I am? Look under your seat. Is there a plane ticket? Right? Like, so so th- that promise is probably pretty specifically for Paul, right? But the Bible's filled with lots of other promises that we can legitimately take hold of. And what I want to do in the brief time that we have left this morning is to share with you just four of my favorite promises. There's lots of these. I'm sure that you have other promises that sustain you. In fact, one of the things we hope you'll do uh, through the course of your RCs this week in small group is to maybe share some of the promises that really mean a lot to you from the scriptures that sustain you and keep you going. But here are four of my favorite ones. The first one is from Psalm 34, 18. It says this, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Now, that's an interesting thing because we just said that if we're part of the people of God, if we've trusted in Jesus by faith, that God's already with us. But this is a remarkable promise because what this is saying is that God is especially close, maybe felt in a more significant way for those who are brokenhearted. For those who are crushed. Do you ever feel crushed? Do you ever feel broken hearted? See, it seems like there's this tendency in Christian culture to think that to ever feel broken hearted, to ever feel crushed is wrong. That if you had more faith, you wouldn't be broken hearted. If you had more trust in God, you would never feel crushed. You would just kind of get right past it. Death of a loved one, you'd just move on. Loss of a job, you'd just move on. Life-changing diagnosis, you just move on. You're tough. No brokenheartedness for the people of God, yeah. One, two, three, Victors. But the Bible says that God's close to you when you're brokenhearted. Are you brokenhearted? God's close to you. Christ is moving toward you. He's getting down into the hole with you. One of the most significant lessons that I've been learning in these last months has been just related to empathy. And that it's that empathy comes both when we open ourselves up to others and tell them, hey, I feel like I'm in a hole. I feel like I'm brokenhearted. I feel like I'm crushed and they get down there with us. It also happens when other people invite us into their hole and we get down in there with them. And so there's just a brief video that I wanna share with you by Brene Brown. Um, It's an animation that somebody did based off of a TED talk that she did. And it's about empathy. It's just very brief. Um, But I think this gives us a picture not only of the empathy that that we can have toward one another, but also the empathy that Jesus has toward us when we fall into a hole. So take a look at this.
1: Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck. It's dark. I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, Hey, climb down. I know what it's like down here, and you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, it's bad, uh huh. Uh, No, you want a sandwich? Um, Empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. At least you have a marriage. (laughs) John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now, I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection.
0: That's good. And here's the reality. I think a lot of us think that Jesus is the one at the top of the hole saying, well, at least I gave you a good life. Chastising us for the brokenheartedness we feel upset at us because we're crushed in spirit. But do you know what the scriptures say? The scriptures say that we have a high priest who knows what we've been through. You know that part where she she said in order to really have empathy, you have to connect with a part of you that's experienced what they've experienced? Jesus has that in spades. Jesus knows what it is to be brokenhearted. Jesus knows what it is to be crushed in spirit. And so, draw near to him. Invite him down into the hole with you. He's with you. He's for you. And he may not have a, hey, take this verse and call me in the morning. He may just need to be with you. And just to connect with your Savior. It might be what you need. What an amazing promise. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Here's another promise, really different in nature, but a promise that has meant a lot to me over the years is Philippians chapter one, verse six. There the apostle Paul writes this. He says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Isn't that good news? That the God who began his work in you is not done I mentioned that I was in Denver last weekend and, and it's, uh, I don't go to Colorado as much anymore because now my parents spend a lot of the year down here and to see them, we typically just go a few miles away rather than go to Denver, but we were there and, and every time I'm there and I you know walk around in my high school bedroom and my childhood home and, and I just can't help but think of how much God's done for me. I was having this real emotional time when we were there going, it's been, because I, I was saved the, the fall of my junior year in high school, and I was thinking, gosh, it's been 20 years. And then Molly, who was a math major, was like, no, it's been 21. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, that doesn't feel as important. Like 20 felt like this milestone, you know? But, but still thinking that God's not done with me. And there were some struggles and there were some sins and there were some things that that I was dealing with then at 17 that just instantly went away. And there are sins and struggles and temptations and pains that I dealt with at 17 and I deal with at 37. But you know what I take a great deal of hope in? You know what helps me just try to keep going and try to keep going is to know that he who began a good work in me will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. God's not done with you. You might feel like, gosh, I'm I'm stuck here again. I'm in this same cul-de-sac of sin. I just keep going and going and going. God's not giving up on you. Here's a third promise that I love from the scriptures. This one from Revelation 21 just like the passage we read a little while ago, this is the verses that immediately follow talking about how God will dwell with us. Here's what it says It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. In other words, people are going to need this 2,000 years from now. Write it down. This is a promise to take to the bank. And I'm struck by that first phrase. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I have uh, my little three-year-old Mary. It feels like she just runs into a lot of stuff these days. It's <laughs> her fingers smashed and her head bonked and... It's not uncommon for her to be coming to me or to Molly in just what feel like inconsolable tears. And it's such a sweet thing to bend down, (laughs) to hold her little face. With my thumbs and with my fingers, just wipe away her tears. That's what you do when you're a father who loves his kids. And that's a promise from King Jesus, that someday he will hold your face in his hands and he will wipe away the tears from your eyes. All of the brokenness and all of the pain, all of the sin that you committed and the sins that were committed against you, he will wipe them away. Write it down because it's faithful and true. How do you keep going? You trust in a God who promises to wipe all those tears away. And here's the last promise that I love. There's so many more, but this is the last one I'll share this morning. It's from Romans 8, verses 31 and 32. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The key to this verse is there in the middle. He who did not spare his own son. How committed is God to being with you? to sustaining you with his promises, to drawing near to you when you're brokenhearted and crushed? How committed is God to finish the work that he began in you? How committed is God to hold your face in his hands? He's so committed to it. And how do you know? Because he did not spare his own son. And if he was willing to do that for us, his people, his bride, so that we could be with him, so that he could dwell among us. If he was willing to do that, then we know this promise is trustworthy and sure. And so we keep moving ahead in obedience, and we keep moving ahead in the face of injustice, and we keep doing the daily forgotten, overlooked tasks that we know he never overlooks or forgets, but everyone else seems to And we just keep putting one foot in front of another, a steady, long obedience following Jesus over and over and over, not to get his approval, but because he's already given his son and these promises are true. That's how we endure. That's how we keep going. It might not get better, but the presence and the promises of God will sustain us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you how in the midst of a big, long story, we can hone in on just this one verse and find a great deal of courage and comfort from it. So Lord, we ask now that you would stand by us like you stood by Paul. We pray that we could hear your voice as you tell us to take courage and to hold on to your promises, that you're close to us, that you're completing us, that you promise to wipe our tears away and make all things new, and that we know that promise is trustworthy and true because you did not spare your own son. Father, as we come now to the table that remembers that sacrifice, we pray that you would use this bread and this cup to remind us of how committed you are to be with us. We pray it in Christ's name, amen.